Hi, this is Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Elise Labatt has traveled to more than 80 countries interviewing and studying world leaders. She spent almost 20 years as the global affairs correspondent for CNN, where she traveled the world with seven of the past U.S. secretaries of state. She has reported on every major global event since 2000, from the Camp David peace talks to 9-11, to the Arab Spring and the rise of ISIS. Prior to joining CNN, Elise covered the United Nations for ABC News. Two years ago, Elise left CNN to pursue a different path. We'll talk about what she's learned from world leaders and how she's using her own experience and perspective to help others. Elise, welcome to She Said, She Said. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Me too. And to hear more about your story. So you have been to at least 80 countries. Yes. Maybe more. And you've interviewed a very broad range of leaders. You've interviewed and traveled with a number of U.S. secretaries of state, as well as world leaders. But talk about some of the lessons that you've learned from these individuals and how you've applied those lessons to your own journey. Well, I mean, I think it started by, you know, there are some kind of questions you look at, you know, what makes leaders successful? And, you know, obviously it's their platform and their charisma, but there are a couple of things that you can learn um, and that I've certainly kind of learned from, from world leaders. Like, first of all, it's it's about playing the long game, mm. you know? I mean, you can win an election, but if you're not building a constituency and you're not you know, thinking about the future, um, you're definitely uh, not playing the long game. You're, you're kind of playing small ball, if you will. And so, you know, talking about women, I interviewed um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the, uh, who's the president of Liberia. And when she came to power uh, several years ago, the country was in the middle of a civil war. You know, it was just kind of coming out of the throes of this long war. And they needed everything, right? They needed schools. They needed hospitals. They needed so the infrastructure, roads. The country was really decimated. And she said, you know, I, I have to put my money towards the education. I have to build up the next generation. And if you're not playing the long game and you're just kind of building a couple of roads or, you know, giving people a little bit of money, yes, you may have that triage, mm-hmm. but you're not looking at the future of the country. And so that's just like one example of people kind of playing the long game. And in my own life, I mean, listen, you know, I have been with CNN for 20 years. I just left recently. And I'm thinking about, you know, what is do I want to do? Do I want to just take another job doing what I'm doing as a foreign correspondent and just jump right in? Or am I thinking about 5, 10, 20 years from now what I want to do? And so, you know, that's one example of, of playing the long game. And I think also, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes is something I've found that really strong leaders do, whether it's John Kerry in Afghanistan kind of going or Hillary Clinton going to the leaders and saying, listen, I know what it's like to lose an election. You got to put your country first, taking your painful experience and helping someone else. Um, Or it's the Dalai Lama 
um, trying to put himself in the Chinese shoes and why they feel so threatened by him. You would think this guy, his country is, you know, exiled from his country. Um, his whole people are, you know, facing such um, oppression from the Chinese. Yet he's saying to himself, if I can't understand what the opposite side is thinking, I'm never going to be able to um, get my argument across. Um, and so I think putting yourself in someone else's shoes is really important. And then lastly, I think it's about turning a crisis into an opportunity. Hmm. Oh, I don't want to get too much into you know partisan politics, but over the last few years, this country um, has become very polarized. And a lot of people have questions about uh, the United States. And world leaders are taking that world crisis, right? And they're parlaying it into an opportunity, whether it's Emmanuel Macron in France using you know, the retreat of the U.S. from world leadership to parlay France into this position of world leader, or it's Vladimir Putin taking advantage of this, you know, chaos in the world. I don't recommend, um, I don't recommend exploit, uh, causing a crisis to then exploit it, but he's certainly parlaying this world crisis, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the Middle East, into an opportunity to reassert Russia on the world um, stage and and I would say I mean look I, I wouldn't say I'm in crisis right now but I am using this kind of pivot in my life into an opportunity mm-hmm. right and leaving CNN again a very painful choice to make but I've made this year really one of of self enlightenment and reflection I've done so many things I never would have done you and I we could talk a little bit more about how we we're introduced, right. but we're both part of the Vital Voices Global Ambassadors Program to mentor uh, young entrepreneurs. I would have never done that. Right. Okay. And even if I did do it, I the week I spent in Puerto Rico with these young women, I would have been on my BlackBerry looking at it the whole time. I wouldn't have been really present. Right. And I wouldn't be traveling the country and speaking to all these people and learning so much more about myself and other people. So I feel like I've turned this midlife crisis. Sure. I don't want to date myself, but into an opportunity for self-growth. And I think that's what, you know, leaders have to be able to do for themselves and their people. Right. How much did your experience with these world leaders, talking to world leaders, how much did it drive your decision to ultimately leave CNN? I think that was the hardest part about it, right? Like being in, you know, so close up front to having a seat in history. Um, you know, I hope that I'll still have that, but that's not a guarantee. And mm-hmm. so I think that was, you know, the hardest thing. But I feel like in order to pay forward what I've learned and try and create the next, you know, media 2.0 or, you know, really help create positive change, like these leaders I've met mm-hmm. around the world, I think I knew that it was time, you know, to move on from from just reporting incremental bits of information into trying to help this world and Americans grapple with who we are as a people and where we're headed. And so I think that was a lot of the impetus. Maybe um, I'm not going to be a world leader, but I can help be a leader in shaping how the country and the world comes together and, and tries to find some common ground. I think it's fair to say that you were a bit maybe disillusioned by what you saw in the in the world of cable news. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how you see this playing out 
over time. Do you see it? You mentioned it is a very polarized political mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there are also other factors, the media, that also drives some of this polarization right. as well. Well, so it's, it's a good kind of, business. It's a it good is. business model. It's like a isn't chicken it? and egg thing, right, right? right? So is it the world leaders or is it, you know, cable news or is it this combination of both? Right? Obviously it has to be both. But 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 talk about how you how you think about this and how you kind of reached the conclusion that you did that this was maybe not the right place to be. I like to trace back the ground zero or the patient zero of this kind of cable news hyper um, environment. It's not the advent of the internet, if you will. I think it's the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. Totally agree. Right? Yes. I just, okay. I, I've just watched this or we're watching right now the People versus O.J. Simpson. Right which is an amazing show. When we were watching that Bronco from overhead and we were riveted and we were, you know, wanted to know everything, that created this kind of, you know, media culture of um, ambulance chasing, if you will. And, you know, then we were on. And then, you know, with CNN and the advent of cable news, look, when I was in high school, I took this class in world affairs. It was called global affairs. And the professor, Mr. Gorman, would come in and he would say, I learned this on CNN. Cable was just starting. Okay, this is in the 80s. And I was like, I want to work for that CNN. I was so fascinated with the world and the people and the culture. And I kind of saw myself as like a anthropologist in that sense. And that's why I got into the media. It was to learn, to educate myself and to educate others. And that's what... You know, that's what Ted Turner did when he first started, was bringing the world together and and letting people know what was going on. Um, And that was the CNN I joined, you know, in 2000. Um, You know, when I saw when I was in college, um, like King Hussein of Jordan and Tarek Aziz, the prime minister of Iraq, kind of debating on Larry King, that was the debate I wanted to see, not two political partisans like yelling at each other with their talking points and not even trying to get their point across, just trying to attack the other one. And I just found over the years, it was less about um, the story. And it was more about, again, little incremental bits of information that didn't, that weren't really impactful. You know, it didn't create your understanding of the story. You just had facts. And then again, it became so, so partisan and so polarizing. And it wasn't about trying to find common ground and, and trying to move the, the issue forward and, and educate people. It was just about, you know, scoring points. And it became more of a sports analogy about moving the ball. It didn't move the ball. It just kind of, you know, they're just volleying back and forth. So to mix many sports analogies. And, you know... The last few years, it was more about personalities than it was about policy and about stories. And when I say personalities, it wasn't so much like, tell us about this fascinating woman in government or this fascinating man that rose from, you know, living in a peanut farm up to uh, being a world leader. It was about who's fighting with who, who yelled at who. And I felt like that was just not where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. That's why, it, you know, there were obviously factors inside um, the company that 
um, caused me to take a second look. But it just wasn't the CNN of my youth, and it wasn't the media or the cable of my youth. And I thought, you know what? It's time for a new adventure. And I had already been exploring other things, and I thought, you know, it's the right time. It was a painful choice to leave my home of almost 20 years and leave my family. They were really a family and friends and the mission, you know, the mission of CNN. But I I think the mission has changed a little bit and I still have my mission. And so I think it's time to pursue my mission somewhere else. Yeah. On an earlier episode, we had a a very well-known career coach. She's been in the business for 40 some odd years. Her name is Carol Hyatt. And she talked about how important it is, even when you make the choice to leave a job, like certainly if you, you know, you're fired, you're laid off, there's all sorts of things that can happen where you go through a career pivot. But she talked about the importance of going through a mourning process, essentially, mourning the things Mm -hmm. that you miss, Mm -hmm. even though they may not Mm -hmm. exist anymore, the mission that you originally Mm -hmm. went there to pursue that ultimately evolved, just as organizations do. Talk about what your maybe toolkit was or what you relied on to help you get past that. And maybe you still are, right? It's been it's been two yeah, years. Yeah, any day now. Right? <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. No, but how sort of what are you turning to? What is it that's giving you that strength to say, you know, it's the right answer. You're just plugging forward. It was and still is a morning process. It was a it was the only choice for me to make. You know, it was just not, I just didn't fit there anymore. But it was hard to leave my identity because, you know, we don't talk about, yes, there's a mission and that's, yes, there's a people that you work with. But, you know, for the last 20 years or so, I've been Elise Labatt with CNN. And now I'm not Elise Labatt with CNN anymore. And what does that mean? You know, who is Elise Labatt? You know, a couple of people said to me recently, oh, what is it like out of journalism? And I'm like, I'm not out of journalism. I'm still a journalist, but people attach you to that identity and you think, who, who am I going to be after that? And, you know, are you still relevant or are you something in the fridge that's just about to go bad or a um, house guest that's like staying one extra night that needs to leave the scene? I don't want to not be relevant anymore. So it, it's been a it's been a real you know, mourning process of, of who I was mm-hmm. and what I did. But I've realized, you know, the day I left CNN, I got a call from the White House and they said, would you like to travel with uh, John Bolton, who was then the national security advisor to Israel and Turkey uh, on a you know diplomatic trip? I said, well, you know, I'd really love to, but I'm I'm, uh, not, I'm today's my last day at CNN. And they said, well, even better. You know, we don't have the greatest relationship with CNN. We wanted to take you. They said, just give it to someone else. And so I ended up going for Politico magazine and Politico and wrote some stories and wrote a profile of John Bolton. And I thought, you know, that was the process of continuing to work on my own things. I did something recently with um, the new Saudi ambassador, who's the she'd be a great podcast person, too. She's the first woman ambassador from Saudi Arabia to any country. Uh And I realized that Elise Labatt is Elise Labatt and my contacts and my um, relationships that I've built over 20 years aren't necessarily just about CNN. You know, right. that was just my platform. And now what's my new platform? And so that's what's getting me through, which is 
you know, I do have a platform and what does that look like and creating it and shaping it and talking to people and really being present for those conversations. Like I think for the last 20 years, even though I was reporting, I was in a kind of haze of just moving from the next fact to the next fact or the next, you know, reporting thing to the next live shot to the next trip. And I wasn't really present for what's happening mm -hmm. and, you know, what does it look like? And now I'm very present. I'm a lot more alive now. And it's scary and it's sad sometimes. And it's hard, you know, and there's anxiety. There's anxiety about relevance. There's anxiety about um, financial security. Um, but I'm alive and I wouldn't trade this period for anything because I know when I get through it, I'm going to be so much stronger of a person than I was uh, two years ago. Yeah. It's hard to admit when you're not happy and unless you're like someone who's, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little risk averse. I'm, I'm risky in terms of, um, you know, I take risks in my work, but I don't take risks in my personal life. Mm. So personal choices. Um, cause again, there's issues of financial security. Um, you know, my family, um, who, um, I'm very close to and want to continue to support. So to take risks and decide to do it for yourself, I'm taking a risk on myself. And so, um, you know, hopefully it'll pay off. <laughs> there's no, no better person to take a risk on than you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so as you think about this notion of identity, what you just said resonates with me so deeply because for many of us, I think especially women, but probably men too, we can get so caught up in the identity and how a particular job or career defines who we are and how we think other people are defining us. How, how much is it? No, I get it. The concern about what other people think versus what you think, your own identity well, versus how they perceive okay, you. It that depends, makes sense. It depends what day you ask. Right? <laughs> Some days it's all about what someone else, like I said, someone said to me recently who I, you know, I like the person, but I don't, you know, it's not someone who's terribly important to me in my life, you know, said something like, oh, you're not a journalist anymore. And I took real offense to that. Like, right. why do I care what that person thinks? But it's very much about how you're looking to the outside people and, um, you know, versus how you see yourself. And I was actually, it's funny that you ask. Um, Diane Keaton recently wrote a book about her brother. She didn't have this relationship with her brother for many years. I think the brother... Um, had some kind of disability or mental illness. I don't, I don't remember. So everyone check the, um, check what it is. But she wrote a book about her brother and that she didn't really have a relationship with him. And she spent her whole career trying to be a movie star. And then started to realize that she didn't have a relationship with her brother. And so she said, I spent my whole life chasing the opinion of others and love of others instead of the love that was in front of me. And it resonated. And she said that, why do you care? My friend said about what people you don't even care about, or you don't even respect think of you. I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I think again, it's about your identity and you've taken this identity for so many years and, and you have to be okay with the idea that you are, it's what you, you know, CNN was what I did. It's not who I am. You know, we have this uh, in in media and entertainment, 
um, mostly in entertainment, but also in media. We call people, I'm going to say a expletive, you can edit it out, but we call them star fuckers. Okay. And people that want to be friends with you or want to date you or want to go out with you because, you know, you're a celebrity, which I don't consider myself, but I remember like, oh my God, you're Elise Labatt of CNN. Like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm just crossing my eyes right now. It doesn't mean anything. Do you want to get to know me as a person? People that know me know who I am. And, um, you know, and people have said to me, I, I'll sh- talk about my anxiety and how I look to the outside world. Oh, do I look irrelevant? And they say, you know, the good news is you still look like you're busy. You're still doing things. And it's true. I'm still out there. But you do worry about like what other people think of you. And I think this is something that I've really grappled with over the years, which is I have confidence in myself and my abilities. And if I didn't, I wouldn't have got to where I am because it was a very rocky road. Like nobody wanted to, you know, put me on air. It was years and years of crawling and really scraping with my fingernails to get where I thought I deserved to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not a lot of people were supportive of that. So if I didn't have faith in myself and confidence in myself, I would be nowhere. Yeah. But at some point, if other people are not seeing you the way you think you should be seen, you start to think, well, maybe I'm not all that. You know, I think it's really important to know who you, you are and go to bed knowing who you are and looking in the mirror and saying, yeah, I, I like myself. You can't, you know, the adulation and, and respect of others doesn't mean anything if you don't have that respect for yourself. And so... You know, I respect myself. I, I like who I am when I look in the mirror. And I I may look like a little bit like less to other people, but, you know, that means that they don't really know me. You had a lot of practice because you were in a high profile role, mm-hmm. right? People watched you on television. They, whether you wanted or not, were giving you, we'll, we'll use air quotes and say feedback, yeah. but you get a lot of nasty stuff yeah. from yeah. random strangers. Right. In, in any kind of high-profile yeah. career, in right. journalism, entertainment, right. whatever. How do you, or how did you learn to kind of deal with that, figure out what comments, criticisms, mm-hmm. feedback you listen to mm-hmm. versus the stuff that you let go, and how do you learn to let it go? Because it goes with you the territory. You don't let it go, but I, like I said, any day now, right? <laughs> um, I think the advent of social media as social media is a blessing and a curse, right? Mm-hmm. Twitter and Facebook. Totally agree. I've never been someone who, you know, social media allows everyone to be an exhibitionist, right? So you're putting yourself out there for others to judge. I don't really do a lot of that. I like to, I like Facebook because I connect with so many people that I've known over the years. You know, I know it's a also an engagement tool for your, you know, followers and support. Um, But some people, I don't know why, everyone has their own reason why they judge others um, because they're not happy with themselves, because they have a lot of hatred, because they don't know you. You know, I think I've learned to look at the comments and, and I always, you know, if some random person on Twitter or Facebook writes something, I always look to see who they are, you know? Who are they? What are they doing? You know, what's their job? Why are they, why could they be saying this? And if it's some rando from, you know, somewhere that, you know, 
didn't even read the article that I put forward, right? Just wrote fake news. You know what I mean? Why am I fake news? Because I used to work for CNN and you don't like them? Or because you read it and you think this is not comporting with your beliefs? I mean, why are people being so, first of all, the, the level of anonymity, and I'm so glad I said that word correctly because I don't, I can't spell it and I can't say it, but anonymity um, allows you to just be a jerk. So my idea for, and I hope someone's listening that can help us do this show. My idea for a reality show is called Twitter Trolls. And I look at the people, you ever hear the, on uh, Jimmy Kimmel or something, the mean tweets? Uh-huh. I, you, t- you go to the person's house or their church or their place of work or their mother's house or their, you know, wife. And they say, oh, this is what Johnny wrote about me. Wow. How do you feel about that? Is I that the this. man you married? Like, <laughs> is that the is that the boy you raised with gutter with a gutter mouth or you know what I mean? Or go to him and say, why do you why do you feel this way? And chances are they didn't even think about it. They just wrote fake news or you're a jerk or some of it is really nasty about my mother. And this is a family feed, you know, I mean. And I just think like it's meaningless. If someone reads an article that I wrote or something that I shared and has a thoughtful comment, whether they're a celebrity or, you know, in my field or not, I'm going to take that a lot more seriously. Um, If they're just, you know, trying to be mean, I think it's pretty obvious. And I've learned to, you know, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because they don't even mean it. And then there are a lot of people out there with a lot of anger and a lot of hatred, and they they don't know me, so they're not really taking it out on me. And that's what, you know, I want to try and change that a little bit in our culture. Like, I think this election has shown, the election of President Trump has shown um, that we alienated a large portion of this country, and we didn't know what their needs and what their anxieties and their fear were, and they were left behind. And I and they were ignored. They and were they were ignored. Well, they were ignored. And so I want to find a place where people can talk and share their opinions and we're not always going to agree but we can all agree that we want like a safe world and our kids to be safe and fed and clean water and stuff like that like can we find some common ground and maybe that hatred can kind of dissipate a little bit Mm -hmm. um i always you know if i feel like someone had a thoughtful comment i try to engage them and i try to say hey you know make a joke like one person called me a dumbass but he spelled it without a B. And I thought, I wrote back, I think you mean dumbass. And then I kind of engaged them. And so a lot of times I can turn them around. Um, And so, you know, some of the people that were the meanest, I've now communicating on Twitter and and, uh, I get along with them. And so I try to engage people and I thank them for engaging if it's a, if, you know, if I can turn them, if I can... Um, try them to be less mean or, or if they have a thoughtful comment. Otherwise, I'm trying to I'm trying to just let it go. Someone one time um, I was going through a rough patch um, online um, and someone gave me a little keychain that said, don't read the comments. <laughs> so um, sometimes I just you just got to, yeah. as Taylor Swift says, shake it off. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you think about the next generation of young journalists, young women, maybe young men who are listening to podcasts like this one, thinking about this as a career pursuit. What advice do you give them? I think there are two kinds of media nowadays. There is the kind of talking head pundit, 
And even some of these reporters are now talking heads, pundits, opinionated. Right. There's that. And then there's storytellers and people that really want to educate and um, be educators. And I think you need to decide which way you want to go. If you're looking for fame and fortune and, you know, um, that's not happening in this field anymore. You can be a personality. You're not going to be a journalist. Right. A journalist is a dying art, unfortunately. You really think so? I, I'm afraid that right now what we talk about, what does a journalist do? A journalist journals, a journalist reports, a journalist explains. There's a lot less of that now. And not because there aren't people that want to do it. But editors and business people who make these decisions have found it cheaper, easier, lazier to just get talking heads. It's a cheaper model. One editor once told me, I said, oh, you know, I know so much about, I don't remember what the story was. I know so much about this. Why are you putting me on more? And the the person said to me, I'm going to be honest with you. It is cheaper to put on a panel of guests just talking about whatever than to, you know, commission reporting and and these kind of things. So I think if you want to be a journalist, you know, tell stories. If you want to be a storyteller, that's a dying art. That's what we need more than ever. Um, You know, but if you want to be just like a personality or – you know, that start a podcast. Yeah, anybody can do it now. Yeah. Not, not, not that this is <laughs> what I'm saying. No, it's is, true. No, but what I'm saying is. It's absolutely is, true. I'm saying, you know, with YouTube channels and everything, like, if it's something you want to do as a profession, you know, take it more seriously than just being like a personality. And I think um, it's also interesting because, you know, sometimes we're in this Washington bubble. You know, what's going on in the Beltway? There's so much going out on the side in the country. Right. And in the and world, the world. Yeah. Um, that needs to be told and needs to be shared. And I think we, you know, kind of need that more than ever. And I'm not sure you get that from a journalist, journalism school. I went to a kind of non-traditional media program, which was about media culture, media theory, um, you know, a little philosophy, a little filmmaking, a little news writing. Um, but I think like, you know, just go do it, mm-hmm. you know. You see something in your neighborhood you want to write about, write about it. There's a local paper or a blog or a, um, your school um, that'll publish it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, everybody, frankly, goes through setbacks, has, you know, bad stuff happens. We make mistakes. It's just part of life. In 2015, you wrote a tweet. You expressed an opinion and you were suspended. Well, let's let's backtrack a little bit. Okay, this was in um, 2015, and it was uh, right after Congress voted to ban all Syrian refugees mm-hmm. for for fear of terrorism, terrorism and, and inability to screen. And, and don't forget, things. this was right after you know, kind of Donald Trump came into the race, and he was the front runner. The Republican, I think, he was the Republican. It was definitely the Republican front runner. And um, it was a climate uh, of um, increased polarization. And Congress voted to ban all Syrian refugees. And don't forget, I was covering the Syrian um, conflict very intensely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there were just 
so many atrocities going on uh, in Syria, hundreds of thousands of people being killed, millions displaced. And Congress voted to ban all Syrian refugees, which I thought was not a very American thing to do. I, it was a bipartisan measure. I think maybe more Republicans voted than Democrats. I don't even remember the count. But it was not a partisan opinion. It was a, about what are we as Americans, which is, you know, what I'm talking about now, about what I think we need to grapple with. Um, and so I said something kind of snarky. I said, oh, the Statue of Liberty is bowing her head in shame right now. Um, I thought it was a fairly innocuous tweet. And at the time... CNN and other media organizations were encouraging their reporters to have a voice, right? So I kind of did it. I, I think maybe that was one of the tweets that I thought twice about it. And then I said, you know what? Screw it. I really feel this way. Most of the time, nothing would have happened, right? Because when you look around at some of the other anchors and reporters, they were saying far worse. I never have ever used said something partisan and I very rarely voice my opinion. Um, but this, we were coming into a culture of increased voicing of opinions. Um, and someone, you know, we could take issue with, um, made an example of me in the, uh, a reporter. I'll leave his name out of it. Um, and said, Oh, what is CNN going to do about this? You know? And there weren't that many people that really cared. You know, it became a big thing on Twitter, but it wasn't like the Republican Party was calling for Elise Labatt's head. It wasn't a big, it really was a small deal. But um, CNN made an example of me and suspended me. Um, they could have let me go. They um, have let people go for tweets before. But I thought it was unfair in the sense that when you looked around at what other people were saying, this was fairly innocuous. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, it was largely uh, the opinion of most Americans and not all Americans. You know, there were a lot of people that were scared of these Syrian refugees coming in legitimately. So, look, should I have done it? Probably not. Did I think it was a big deal in the culture of what I was seeing on Twitter? Um, no, I fell prey to that. And um, I was suspended. Why was I suspended? I think it was because CNN had a Republican debate coming up and they didn't want to piss the Republicans off. And some Republicans were um, saying some things about it. Um, and they suspended me. One week I kind of drank a lot of scotch and cried. And um, then I went to Puerto Rico for a week and drank pina coladas. Um <laughs> I, I, you know, I tried to get through it because they were going to let me come back. Uh, they didn't want to let me on the air right away. So it was suspended out of out of work for two weeks. But they didn't want to let me on the air till after the Republican debate. Mm. So I really was off the air for about a month. Um, and, you know, everyone got over it pretty quickly. Um, I'll let you know when I'm over. it. <laughs> how 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 did they reconcile the encouraging you to quote unquote use your voice and that they and that other people were doing it and far worse and not editorializing like how, no, how can you do one without you, the other you can't and now in today's culture look when you see where where i was um 
to where at that point to where we are now. I mean, look, I shouldn't have done it. And but I don't think there was a lot wrong with it. At the time, I kind of was encouraged. I I was sorry that I if I offended some people. Mm -hmm. I am. But we've gotten way out of hand with editorializing. Like there are very few reporters out there that are not editorializing. And the ones that I do do know who they are that don't anymore, that still don't. And I really respect them. But now everybody just says whatever they want. And why? It's fine as long as it's because of President Trump. And people wake up this morning and say, oh, President Trump sucks. Let's discuss that. And, you know, there are legitimate questions about this presidency and some of the things that he's doing in this country. But the way that it's not only has he kind of, I feel like lowered the bar on the presidency, but the media has lowered its bar. Um, and we, I don't know that we're going to be able to recover from that. And some, you know, when I, when it happened to me, um, a lot of people on Twitter said, well, why is it okay for X person to do it? And it's not okay for Elise to do it. And they said, oh, that person was an anchor. Well, excuse me. I think Peter Jennings would be like turning over in his grave if you thought that there's a lower bar for an anchor. But anyway, I should never hear an anchor um, or any journalist say like, oh, after hearing the president speak like, oh, that's the most shameful moment of my entire life. I, I can't believe I'm an American, right? Like, I mean, the editorializing has gotten really out of hand and um, makes my innocuous tweet at the time look like Mary Poppins. But nowadays, like, I don't know, um, anybody could say says a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was one of the reasons it, it was it was hurtful for many reasons what happened. Um, a, because I felt like, you know, I wasn't supported because that was an example was made out of me um, and others had done a lot worse. Now I look at how far we've come and it's sad. Yeah. It's sad. We're, this is not the media's finest hour. I think we all know that. There is fatigue mm -hmm. <laughs> from all of this that you're describing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. People are, many people have stopped tuning in. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not necessarily watching. Um, what, what happens next? What changes this dynamic? There needs to be a more sophisticated way of covering this presidency. I don't know if it's an aberration who we're going to get next if we if we get someone who's a little bit more mainstream maybe it goes back to um what we had it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle though there needs to be a more sophisticated way of covering officials and you know what they're doing and and helping create a more effective debate and more informed and effective citizens mm -hmm. I don't know the answer. I'm really grappling with it right now. You know, the media, as much as Congress and the executive branch have lost the trust, the media has lost the trust. The public is, is needing something that none of us are giving them. I, maybe we need to find out more about what they're looking for, but... It's a vicious cycle where we're helping to perpetuate the polarization and the hatred. Again, not our finest hour. We need to do better and we need to find 
more sophisticated ways of of journalism and and educating and you know muckraking even right but the problem is i think as much as the media can kind of come out and um show what's going on there are no consequences for that so i think then it goes to kind of holding there's no accountability anywhere from any institution i think institute you know establishment institutions whether it's congress whether it's the executive branch whether it's the media um we all need to do better you are an expert at storytelling and one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is how sometimes as women we can have some difficulty in both understanding our value where we fit into an organization and telling our most compelling story you're advising clients now to some degree on how to tell their stories. Talk a little bit about advice that you give to people, women in particular, about articulating and telling their story. Well, I mean, there have been so many books by women about women, like The Confidence Code or Leaning In. And it's really about, I think women have been, you know, like other minorities, women are not minorities, but minorities also have been made to feel other than and not feeling that they're deserving of the same type of recognition as a man. And so I think it's about, you know, knowing who you are, knowing that you belong here, and having the confidence to be able to speak up this, um, I want to talk about uh, this project Janine Jiver and I are working yeah, on. Yeah, a new podcast. A new podcast called Open Loop. We'll talk about that in a minute. But she was telling me about this study where, you know, women are asked how much of a salary they should make. You know, they put more when they're written, when it's written down. But if they're asked to speak it, they say less. Whereas a man, it's the same. <laughs> because women don't think they they can speak out. Or you and might not like me. If I might, tell you if, well, how much right. I want to make, you may not like me well, as much. Or, or like women are kind of seen as you know, emotional or needy or bitchy or no one ever talks that way about a man. But I think it's, um, what is that? Alanis Morissette has that song, you know, <laughs> I'm all these things. I'm a bitch. I'm a mother. I'm a child. I'm a lover. And it's like, I think women need to embrace all the amazing things that make us women. You know, those are not things to be ashamed of. Right. Um, that men don't have, like, Women can go into societies around the world and talk to people, whether it's men or women, because we have this kind of emotional connection. Um, and I think it's time for us to embrace our sheeness. We have our stories and we should be proud of them. And just because we're a woman doesn't make our story any less important. It makes it more important. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the podcast. We're going to have Janine Driver right. on hopefully next week, who you were kind enough yeah. to introduce me to. Janine Driver is um, a body language expert, an emotional intelligence expert, really, um, owns the Body Language Institute. I met her a few years ago, many years ago, actually, at CNN in the makeup room. And I was just so attracted to her bubbly, vivacious personality. And um, she was helping me with interviews, like whether it's Hillary Clinton or John Kerry. And she'd say, oh, when... Hillary Clinton throws her head back and laughs like, you know, she's kind of not being honest or, you know, and she was very helpful to me in that sense. And um, over the years, I'd run into her, but I never really come. We never really connected, but we liked each other. And when I left CNN, 
um, I kind of cast a wide net in my network and I thought, I'm going to call that Janine Driver. She's so fun and interesting. And I bet, you know, she has some words of wisdom. Well, she invited me to this weekend, which we're going to take you to, um, which is, she calls it glamping. And she invites all her clients, um, her best client, females, um, her, you know, top clients and friends of, of years, people that she connected with over the years. And maybe not a lot, but like that touched her. And she thought of me as one of those people. So 60 women got together in, in Maine, in Wells, Maine, outside of Kennebunkport. And we had this weekend together. Um, and it was like a little women's empowerment, a little uh, tourism in Maine, a little campfire. And uh, Janine, um, you know, she's really wise and she knows a lot about um, human behavior. And so we started hanging out a little bit more. She has a class called the Body Language Institute, where it's like a three-day class. And she teaches you about decoding human behavior. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind the story? What are people not telling you? Now, you a lot of times talk like this. I'm, I'm holding my hands together mm-hmm. in a little steeple. Steepling, that's yeah. called steepling. That's a power move. Okay? And that's what Angela Merkel and Beyonce and other women and Oprah do. Whereas, you know, I was doing a speech and I kind of talked to her about this lessons I've learned from world leaders, but, um, or the story behind the story. And we noticed that when Vladimir Putin is uncomfortable with something, his legs shoot up like this, (laughs) right? I'm shooting my legs up and it's, it's, um, you don't know it. It's unconscious. The body knows it's uncomfortable and it's lying or it's being deceptive or it's, uh, before you do, maybe five seconds before. So this was a three-day course in terms of decoding human behavior. And I learned so much and I started hanging out a lot with Janine. And we said, what if we can bring this to a podcast about decoding human behavior and using pop culture? Like everyone's interested in Jad, uh, Jen and Brad or Meghan Markle or, you know, these Janine does a lot with law enforcement, um, with legal cases uh-huh. and training law enforcement. Um, what if we can take that and kind of apply it to everyday life? You know, if you can see those human behaviors in others, maybe you can um, acknowledge it in yourself and recognize it in yourself. And how are you communicating to others? And what are others saying to you about how they may not be comfortable? And that could really change the whole dynamic of how you speak to people. And, you know, Janine and I have a great chemistry. We're lots of fun. We just kind of nerds and hang out and, you know, chat forever. Um, so we're putting together a podcast called The Open Loop. We the hope you'll loop. join us. Because um, open loops are something that when you're having a conversation or you're reading something, there's something missing. There's something that leaves you hanging a little bit. And that's what an open loop is. And so we're there to close the loop for you. So great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. One final question. We ask everyone who comes on for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. You've given us amazing perspective. And we're so candid and authentic in your conversation this morning. So I really, really appreciate that. But if you had to boil it down to one thing that you would leave our listeners with, what would that be? I think something that I'm grappling with is about knowing who you are and tuning out the noise of what others think of you. You want your, you want the people you love and respect to appreciate you. But other than that, others can't love you if you don't love yourself. And so I think self-respect 
and self-love is really important. And I mean, we're all still grappling with it. And again, I'll let you know when I'm there. But don't try and mold yourself into what you think others want you to be, right? Because that's not authentic and that's tiring, you know? Um, once you figure out who you are and, and where you're going and what you want to be, it's the most liberating thing. And that's where I think true happiness comes from. It's tiring and exhausting to be what other you think others think you should be. Because um, most of the time you're wrong. And, and second of all, they ch- keep changing their mind. Yeah. Elise Labatt, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. So great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. To learn more about Elise Labatt, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 88. There you'll find links to Elise's full bio, as well as some photos from our visit today here at the beautiful EFB Studios on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Now, a small request for our listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast, please send me a note. Let me know what resonates and what you'd like to hear more about. You can reach me via the contact link on the website or email me directly at laura at lauracoxkaplan.net. Also, be sure to subscribe so we'll add you to our newsletter list. We won't spam you, I promise, but we will send out additional content about shows and topics that really seem to resonate with you, our listeners. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this growing community of women who are inspiring others and having a positive impact on the world every single day.